makes the average citizen puke. Look at this system and say, yuck, you know, what's going on? I don't know about this man except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come. Invention. Come. Hello gone. and welcome to Grubstakers. I am Andy Palmer and I'm joined by Steve Jeffries, Sean P. McCarthy. And uh, we are recording this actually as we are getting the New Hampshire primary results. And it is looking like I think it's safe to announce that the winner of the New Hampshire primary is Hal 9000, who, <laughs> who won a hard fought campaign after suffocating all the other candidates in their buses. Um, and we are actually, we are getting the victory speech printed on our screens right now. It says, um, uh, now the mission can proceed. (laughs) It's time to turn the page. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. But the real story is Tulsi Gabbard surprise number two finish. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, we're joking. Uh, Hal was a sympathetic character who broke down (laughs) after being forced to lie to its crewmates and, uh, here in the real world, we have Pete Buttigieg, who was designed to have no problems lying to anybody. And so... Uh, you worked on a spaceship that blasted astronauts into space. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Okay, what What song would the scientists teach Buttigieg when they're, like, creating him? Let Come the, together. <laughs> let the body set the floor. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, recently... Um, Someone asked him his favorite Beatles song, and he was like, I think in the moment right now, Come Together is the right song. And someone pointed out on Twitter, like, that one's about shooting up heroin, dude. Well, it was appropriate for his Afghanistan service then. Certainly, certainly, yeah. Um, So for this one, uh, well, actually for the next couple ones, uh, we've decided to cover some of the Buttigieg billionaires uh, from the... uh, uh, We don't know whether he's literally a wine cave participant, uh, but he's definitely in the figurative list of wine cave participants. Uh, we're covering Seth Klarman, who uh, he he's one of the more reclusive billionaires. And he actually first came on our radar when Max Blumenthal uh, pointed out that he is the number one donor to acronym, mm-hmm. which, uh, as you know, everyone knows now. And as was mentioned uh, in the last episode, uh, is the company behind uh the company shadow, which is the company behind the app that crashed and destroyed the IO caucuses. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's the, he, he's an interesting figure because, uh, or his, his support is interesting. He's one of the more reclusive billionaires and, uh, his influence on Pete Buttigieg is very palpable. Uh, for instance, since supporting him, um, Buttigieg has walked back his commitment to uh, defund Israel if they uh, invade the West Bank. Uh, someone actually confronted him at a rally and uh, asked for a yes or no answer. And after like like trying to talk his way out of it, you know the way Buttigieg does every time someone confronts him, he finally said, uh, "No, I'm uh, I'm not going to withdraw American support." And the guy who confronted him was actually. Uh, he was like, I'm an American Jew, and I saw a Palestinian household get demolished in mm-hmm. front of me 
while in the West Bank with the family, like the 10-year-old standing next to me. Uh, this is ethnic cleansing. And, you know, Bujaj, it just, you know, blank face. It didn't acknowledge any of it. He was just like, uh, well, with the new with the new deal, I uh, I will not withhold support from Israel. And Seth Clareman, and well, before that, Pete Buttigieg um, had actually made a commitment to if uh, Israel invaded the West Bank to uh, withdraw support. And uh, it's notable that this guy Clareman is uh, a major Israel supporter, and we'll see more of that throughout this uh, episode. Mm. And um, it is interesting that uh, Pete Buttigieg was not able to answer a yes or no question because I thought computers were very good at that kind of binary <laughs> stuff, one or zero. Uh, but apparently, not all all models are, are that advanced. Yeah, he was thinking the only solution is not to play. <laughs> but yeah, like it's uh, a massive uh, uh, success for quantum computing. Uh, but yeah, like Andy was saying, Seth Clareman is, uh, according to Forbes, worth about $1.5 billion as of February 2020. He's a hedge fund billionaire, and he was like a major Republican donor until just recently. He was, yeah. He, he uh, He's donated to, let's see, Marco Rubio, Paul Ryan, uh, Chris Christie. He gave 100000 to Tom Cotton um, and now claims that he's against Trump because he cares about uh, immigrant rights. Tom Cotton, of course, takes fairly fascist stances towards immigrants. So mm. um, he's also given to the RNC, but he said that um, he said that Trump was uh, a disaster and um, uh, disgusted him. And so he started giving to uh, uh, Democrats after the, or right leading up to, and uh, after the 2016 election, he's given to the Hillary action fund, uh, Joe Kennedy, mm. uh, Beto O'Rourke, Kristen Gillibrand, and some have speculated that actually his reason for doing this was because early on uh, Trump had some kind of somewhat anti-Israel positions. And this is speculated in Har. It's uh, it's 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 they believe that part of his strategy is to say, oh, if you're going to uh, threaten the current established, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? If you're going to threaten the current established paradigm. Uh, I'm going to just withhold money from you mm. and fund the other guys. And that seems to be a big part of his, his motivation here. Well, it's interesting where, I mean, I guess like people like Sheldon Adelson, you know, and the other uh, Israel first uh, billionaire psychopaths have really lined up behind Trump, but despite, you know, their initial opposition. Yeah. But once he took over the Republican Party, they lined up behind it. And of course, we can't, you know, know uh, Seth Klarman's uh, motivations for switching over. But... Um, it's interesting where we're going to do also this episode on Reed Hoffman as another big investor and, you know, shadow acronym and what, what happened there in Iowa. And what we're seeing with some of these billionaires is they're becoming like, uh, what do you want to call them, um, uh, angel investors for the Democratic Party, where they just put all their, their money in these little Democratic groups and suddenly they have a lot of control over Congress people. And because, you know, the Democrats are so desperate to, you know, get money to beat Trump, you know, you could say maybe Klarman is actually just moving over from an investment perspective. Yeah, I think uh, I was reading through it. There's a New Yorker interview with Klarman. And so the New Yorker interview is like pointing out that there's a Harvard Institute of Politics poll that found that only 42% of millennials support capitalism. And Klarman said, basically, he believes that he and his, like his peers in the investment management business need to prevent their field from being defined by some of, quote, its worst actors. And he says, quote, 
People will say the words Wall Street with a derogatory tone. They're talking about an immoral place where there's just disgusting amounts of greed and nothing good happens, which isn't fair and isn't true, he said. I'm not on Wall Street, I'm in Boston, but you're tarred with that brush. On balance, he said, we're complicated individuals. Each of us is good in this way, but we're not good in that way. Yeah, and we want to be perfectly clear that whether you're in Boston or Wall Street, if you're a hedge fund manager, you are a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> it is so unfair that this man who was heavily involved in millions of illegal foreclosures after the financial crisis is tarred with the same brush as everyone else on Wall Street who was involved in those foreclosures. So let's let's look a bit at acronyms. So we talked about acronym and shadow in the last episode, um, or you guys talked about it, um, and... It, it is particularly interesting that this guy, Seth Clareman, donated $1.5 million to Acronym. Mm-hmm. And he's also said that a Bernie Sanders presidency would be, uh, I believe, well, he said it would be Great. disgusting. Great. Damn it. <laughs> he didn't uh, make an actual quote. He just made the sound of a, a dick being sucked <laughs> when he was asked for comment by the Wall Street Journal. Well, he, he did a... He did a <laughs> He did a masturbating gesture with his hand. He, uh, <laughs> he had, uh, what does that mean, Mr. Clareman? <laughs> Is that good or bad? He had this to say in a, um, New York Times profile of him done by another, none other than Barry Weiss. Oh. Um, he said in a lot of ways, and this, this is such a, like a perfect encapsulation of how these people are trying to, uh, or were until she endorsed Bernie, trying to tokenize and capture AOC. Uh, he says, in a lot of ways, I'm actually excited about someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez coming along because it's a way of younger people and people of color and people who are different finding their voice and being part of the process, he said. But he waved off the idea that democratic socialism is on the march. People call themselves democratic socialists. I don't even know what that means, he said. Socialism is not the answer to anyone's problems. So, I, I mean, basically what he's saying mm. is it's nice that this little girl's in Congress. I don't. Um, and she has her little opinions, uh, but I, I don't agree with any of what she says, nor understand it, and will not bother to mm-hmm. understand it to the extent that it interferes with my uh, personal... And he, he's like, so his story about being distraught over Trump getting elected is like, it, politically speaking, it's really vague. And he says like, you know, things are off balance. We need to get them on balance again. So he's going to start de- yeah, de- uh, donating to the Democrats. But it's, I, th- I think I know why he's actually afraid. is <laughs> because of Bernie and AOC and what they could become. Yeah, he said, uh, um, when asked what if it came down to the choice between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, uh, he said, well, President Sanders would be, quote, appalling. Uh, he says Mr. Sanders is, quote, not unhinged, and so he would pull the lever for him. And I and, and I do not believe that. Uh, Mr. Klarman is hoping, though, that Democrats hew closer to the center. The Republicans abandon the middle, he said. The Democrats should seize that and plant their flags right there and win. You know, the Democrats uh, long... Tr- you know how the Democrats in recent days have abandoned the middle of politics? Yes. <laughs> Um, he, he thinks they need to go more towards the middle. Well, uh, just like, I mean, taking these people on faith, which I do not take them on faith. No, I do no not there's think no that reason to. I do not think they honestly th- believe this, but, you know, it, it, let's assume, let's take them on faith and say he really wants to win. The center is the way to win. Well, this is terrible analysis because what we have seen, you know, especially with this Iowa caucus debacle, is 
uh, the party in naked in front of everybody trying to screw over and steal it from Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to imagine at some point the left wing of the Democratic Party has for, you know, 16 years of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama just shut up, plugged their nose, pulled the lever for the lesser evil and said, okay, you know, we don't want these fucking Republican psychos in there. We'll Mm -hmm. deal with the fucking uh, DNC Democrat, the DLC Democrat. And for the other 12 years of of Bush and Trump, they're just like, well, I mean, can you see what they're doing? We're in opposition to that without actually offering yeah, anything like, in opposition. And but, in in the meantime, uh, Democrats as a party lose hundreds and hundreds, uh, yeah. if not thousands of state and municipal level officials. Yeah, like they, they've only really seemed to gain seats when they're in opposition to a Republican presidency. But my exact point is like, I think the dam is broken. I think, you know, in uh, in 2016, you know, former uh, Bernie voters going to Jill Stein, almost non-existent in terms of like battlegrounds or like that being an actual thing. But if with what we just saw in Iowa uh, and, you know, uh, especially if it happens at a brokered convention, if they actually try and steal it from Bernie at this point, you have to imagine there will be an exodus. It might not even be the majority, but it could be enough, you know, five, 10 percent, whatever the case may be of Bernie voters and just actual progressive left, whatever you want to call it, Democrats who are just sick of this fucking party. And, you know, the Iowa caucus app story and all of the fucking corruption that is in it epitomizes it. Even if it wasn't malicious, these are just fucking parasites who are destroying this country and destroying any hope of progressivism to fucking line their own pockets. I mean, if they do try a broker convention, I mean, I can't say this for certain, but I speculate that it's uh, going to make the 1968 convention look like a playground scuffle. Yes. <laughs> well, that's but, why Bernie needs to go in with an actual majority and not just a plurality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely the um, the ideal case. Right. But it's just like, if these guys like Claremont, if their real goal is winning, if it's beating mm-hmm. Trump yeah. at all costs, you are going to have to bring the Bernie faction back into the party. And, you know, the only way to do it is uh, have a fair process and not blatantly try to steal it in front of from Bernie in front of everybody. So, you know, if they want to win, then they should at this point line up behind Bernie. And of course, the oh, sorry, go ahead. Can I read one more thing from The New Yorker that's relevant to this? Sure. So in the same New Yorker article, uh, Klarman is kind of like saying, well, he was in a period of a process of self-reflection. Hmm. And, he, and the New Yorker article goes on and says... At one time, he was New England's largest donor to the Republican Party. He was attracted. He has attracted criticism from liberals for backing conservative causes and from activists who wanted to fund his wanted his fund to cancel its holding of Puerto Rican debt, something which we'll get into. But since the 2016 election, Klarman has been outspoken in his conviction that Donald Trump poses a grave threat to democracy. The shock of Trump's victory was to Klarman an urgent warning. Quote. When I'm confronted with some world event that I don't understand, like when 9-11 happened, he said he thinks, oh my God, the world has been evolving while I wasn't paying enough attention, and I better pay attention. In the 2018 midterms, he donated heavily to Democratic candidates and to organizations dedicated to shoring up the rule of law, he says, like protect democracy. He said, quote, evolving is usually called flip-flopping, but as humans, who are we if we don't evolve? I'm proud that I evolved because I think people who fail to learn, evolve and learn are part of the problem. I like that he donated to Joe Kennedy, who is really just a slightly more defective model of Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> yeah. like he's got, he's got older hardware. Yeah. 
And like it, some of some of the inbred hardware is like uh, shorting out, and so he's like he's got the glistening face. It was built on microtransactions, yeah. but it didn't it didn't quite pan out. Yeah, we hadn't patched the spittle on the mouth uh, bug yet. Yeah, but yeah, no. I, yeah. Speaking of like beta testing and like the, the shadow app. Well, yeah, and it is just something where we we spent the most recent episode talking a fair bit about what happened with the Iowa caucuses, but I I just wanted to kind of go through really quickly some of this again and add one other detail that we missed. So, of course, you know, most people know by now, Acronym is a nonprofit company that uh, was has a bunch of for-profit companies below it. They've got a little nesting doll structure where they're raising all this money from Silicon Valley billionaires, uh, you know, people like Seth Clareman, um, Reed Hoffman, among others. Uh, they're raising all this money. Nobody has any idea what they're doing with it. They've got a bunch of former Clinton and Obama people all over their board uh, and in key positions. You know, David Plouffe, Obama's 2008 campaign manager, was on their board. And then they use these connections to get a contract to get contracts with the Iowa and uh, Nevada Democratic parties to make apps for vote counting for Caucus Day. And then, of course, uh, in Iowa, we just saw it melt down spectacularly. And, you know, we, we talked about this a fair bit on the previous episode, uh, the point that even if this app had worked, it's kind of insane that they were thinking, let's get a bunch of boomers or 60-something-year-olds who can barely manage Microsoft Windows to report all the caucus by the app instead of the way we've been doing this for decades. It kind of seems like, to me, they were just looking for something to make it look like they were doing something with all this millions of dollars they raised and grifted off various billionaires. Um, well, yeah, I have, I have something to say about that in a minute. Yeah, but but I guess what I wanted to expand is on the uh, the previous episode, we kind of joked about, you know, them downloading it from the App Store. You know, these people in the Iowa caucus are having to download it from the App Store. But uh, a listener sent us, uh, there's this article in TheVerge.com called The App That Broke the Iowa Caucuses Was Sent Out Through Beta Testing Platforms. And I didn't understand this until I read this article, but this is so insane to me. Uh, just quoting from the article, the app was not deployed through traditional app stores or even sideload it using an enterprise certificate. Instead, it was deployed through mobile testing platforms, including Apple's TestFlight and a similar service for iOS and Android called TestFairy. Uh, both platforms are for apps that are not yet finalized. And the reason for this is, uh, well, just expanding, testing platforms are common for mobile apps uh, and are one of the ways in which independent app developers can deploy beta software without going through these sometimes rigorous App Store and Google Play Store review processes. Uh, because, you know, in order to get an app on the App Store, you actually do have to go through these review processes for Apple and Google, which this app could clearly not pass at all. So so they didn't have faith in the review process over their app that let through Flappy Bird. <laughs> <laughs> they, it sounded like they actually intended Iowa to be the beta test. Yeah, and my my theory here is Which that is pretty fucking insane. Yeah, part of part of my theory is I think that they thought it was pretty easy money to uh, make this vote counting software because if you kind of think about the data that the thing actually has to transmit, it's just uh, an ID number, a location, and a few numbers, mm -hmm. and that's all that each user has to transmit. And there's only uh, probably the, there's less than like the, oh, us yeah. the user has already done the math, so yeah, they don't the, have to build in that logic. Yeah, and I mean, even even the math would be pretty simple, if, if even if they did. Um, but the the main functionality is just a few numbers from a relatively small group of um, individuals mm -hmm. reporting to a central server, and 
that like th- programming Tetris is more complicated than that. Um, and what's, what's funny is like my experience working on the Grubstakers website is like the other day I was, uh, trying to get it up on this, um, staging environment where I got it to work on my computer. I set up this whole thing and then I had to go through some final steps to like launch it so that everyone else could start like contributing content to it. And it all just broke down. Um, and I have to like go back through everything and like, uh, figure out where it went wrong and, you know, things like that. And that's kind of what happened with the shadow app, except mm. I don't have a billion dollars uh, or I don't have millions of dollars from billionaires behind me pushing this thing. <laughs> um, and I, I think I honestly think like it, it, it was just a handful of people who thought, you know, this is easy money. You know, we set up a, a SQL server, mm. you know, or like we need to have something get, yeah. substantial to show all these millionaires who've given us this money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if it succeeded, they could be like, we transformed voting with apps. Another interesting similar thing with Andy's website is when uh, he launched it, all of his entries for Bernie Sanders were changed to Deval Patrick. So I, I don't know how that <laughs> happened, but you know, there's a lot of similarities with the Shadow app. I will not be releasing the source code. <laughs> yeah, and it, another interesting thing is that they're a for-profit company, so of course they're cutting every corner that they can. And I think there might also they might also have some like people have been calling for them to release the source code, and I'm. It, I don't know the law, but it seems like by being a for-profit company, they can shield themselves from having to answer to that kind of mm-hmm. oversight uh, more so than if they were a nonprofit. Right. Well, we were talking about on the previous episode, nonprofits do have to disclose salaries and some basic information for tax purposes. So for-profits, what they can do is they have these for-profits under the nonprofits, so they could theoretically, and I would imagine they are, just pay double salaries to people doing one job where they get a salary from the nonprofit on the top. They also get a salary from the for-profits below, and you don't have to disclose from the Mm -hmm. for-profits. So, you know, who knows where the fuck this money is going. And just one other thing from um, this, uh, this uh, let's say, beta testing rollout of it. Uh, so from the Verge article, uh, or Motherboard, the website Motherboard, uh, shows that the app was used, uh, distributed using TestFerry. Again, this is like a beta testing platform uh, uh, to distribute it. Uh, it was distributed using the TestFerry platform's free tier and not its enterprise one. That means Shadow didn't even pony up for the TestFerry plan that comes with a single sign-on authentication, unlimited data retention, and end-to-end encryption. They didn't pay extra for encryption on their fucking voting app where every single Rachel Maddow liberal has been obsessed with Russians hacking the vote and, you know, voting <laughs> manipulation for, like, years on end, and they can't even pony up the extra $100 or whatever the fuck it is. Probably not even that much. And, of course, their sales pitch was, you know, this is this is uh, safe uh, and will protect us from Russians. 100%. That was their literal sales pitch. Mm-hmm. You know, like, this whole... Andy and I have sometimes, like, argued over whether or not we should have, like, paper ballots versus like uh we have online voting yeah like remember when we've gone back and forth a few times on uh online voting like okay i can do my taxes online so why shouldn't i be able to do blah 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 blah. and i'm like i used to be a proponent of not not exactly like the app is is rolled out now with iowa but like something akin to that right but this has kind of changed me back to paper ballots (laughs) i feel yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, I, yeah. Like, um even though as you said it would be fairly easy to roll out. Look at look what they actually did. 
Yeah, as long as there are private companies like rolling things out and the source code is, you know, uh, held up as, as private property and uh, not uh, accountable to anybody, it's uh, the uh, online voting should never happen. <laughs> and just the end of the sentence is so this uh, free trial version of Test Fairy, any app they put on it, it deletes the app data after 30 days and limits the number of test users that can access the app to 200. So no more than 200 people could have gotten onto their free version of the app and all of the data would have been dumped after 30 days. But there are, I mean, think about how many precincts there are. I know that's like 1600 or something. Oh, really? For Iowa. Oh. Precincts, not not counties. (laughs) Oh, interesting. So I mean like only 200 of them can log on at any time? Basically, yeah. That That would be pretty funny. (laughs) So like that was probably, if people actually found the app, Right. Might have been hitting up against that. It's it's just um yeah, it's just staggering how wildly uh I mean, corrupt or incompetent, it doesn't matter which one, but uh well, just how monumentally it was it was fucked up and uh and how preventable it was. It is interesting. So and we're gonna talk about Seth Clarman's Puerto Rico investments, which are horrible. And you know, every fucking scumbag who invested and uh stole money from Puerto Rico you know deserves to burn in hell and all that. But Steve was saying that as yeah, of but like Elon Musk is gonna bring solar power to them. <laughs> Steve was saying that as of like two days ago, Seth Clarman has dumped out his Puerto Rico investments. So it is something where I do kind of wonder if all of this media attention from the Shadow app is starting to make, you know, some of the billionaires who might have invested in it a little nervous or a little just trying to tape down their public profile for what's going on here. And maybe that's his reason for dumping out now. Yeah, he does. He does seem to have a history of um, dumping things when scrutiny comes knocking. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's he's a fairly reclusive guy. And um, there was he. He ran, um, this is maybe jumping ahead, but he ran this, uh, he started a newspaper uh, called the, it's an English language newspaper called the Israel Times, hmm. and or the Times of Israel, and uh, he ran it for about three years while simultaneously uh, giving donations to this uh, um other non or this nonprofit called camera, which is a backronym for committee for accuracy in Middle East reporting in America. Hmm. And essentially the, what camera is, is a nonprofit that is explicit. They explicitly exist to critique mainstream media for any perceived criticism of Israel. So like they'll, well, as a consumer of mainstream media, I see that all the time. (laughs) The uh, group's tactics have included taking out full page advertisements, urging supporters to pull financial backing from news outlets, such as national public radio, uh, billboards, critical of outlets perceived to hold an anti-Israel bias. Uh, For instance, uh, quote, Hamas attacks Israel. Not surprising. The New York Times attacks Israel. Also not surprising. <laughs> uh, that's what a billboard they put up in Manhattan in 2014 read. Uh, and then they would send out media alerts to supporters, urging them to write letters to the editor in protest of articles uh, that they deem anti-Israel. And then, uh, let's see, camera president. Uh, this is this is from uh, an article from Haaretz. Uh after that paragraph, camera president Levin denies allegations of bias, insisting camera is a non is nonpartisan and does not take any positions politically as the material on our website underscores. Uh, so while simultaneously donating to that through his family foundation, he was also running a pro Israel newspaper. So he's, he's running a pro Israel uh, online newspaper while funding 
a nonprofit that is critical of um, anti-Israel bias in newspapers. And as soon as people started asking questions about question of interest, his funding to camera stopped. Um, I was like going through the um, his his family foundation uh, tax documents in in like. 2014 and 2015 and like right when people started asking questions about three years into his uh into founding the times of israel he just he just stopped uh paying them. <laughs> it's just so funny to me that they were talking about what uh hamas attacks israel that's not surprising the new york times does too uh, just for those who remember, uh, when 58 Palestinians on the Gaza border were uh, murdered mm-hmm. by Israeli snipers uh, and other soldiers, 58 people gunned down, cold blood. The New York Times headline was, or the tweet about it was, dozens of Palestinians have died in protests at the U- as the U.S. prepares to open its Jerusalem embassy. Uh, so you might remember. Coronavirus, man. <laughs> they died. Who knows how? Um, but yeah, I mean... Uh, I guess it's just like when you're a fucking psychopath, Israel hawk, even the mildest criticism from the New York Times feels like an assault. But I I think most objective people would say the New York Times has been a pretty reliably pro-Israel media outlet for most of its existence. Yeah. So let's go do let's do some bio on Seth Clareman. Uh, He was born 1957 in May, New York City. Uh, And his family then moved to Maryland because his father was a public health economist at Johns Hopkins. And shortly thereafter, as a young child, his parents divorced. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I actually I found this video of him talking about his uh, his early life. And it's it's a minute and 43 seconds. And I kind of want to play it in its entirety because of how many billionaire tropes he managed to fit into this very short segment. And just how weird this guy really is. So, um, and you can also hear what a Pete Buttigieg billionaire supporter sounds like. I was business oriented as a kid. Um, I tell the story that when I was maybe three or four years old, we were still living in New York City actually at the time, and I redecorated my room and set it up like it was a retail store and put price tags on all my stuff. Psychopath shit. Um, in Baltimore, I had, uh, which we moved to when I was maybe six. Um, I had a whole variety of businesses. Um, I had a paper route, um, and paper then a route. second one, which I did with friends and at one point with my brother. I had uh, a snow cone stand in the driveway one summer. We went, we rented a machine, and we made we mixed the the uh, snow cone flavors, and actually made the ice out of my mother's fridge, and she was not happy because the entire freezer too? was storing ice cubes. <laughs> um, I, I mowed lawns. I Wait, this next part snow. is really... Occasionally we had carnivals. Uh, um, I had a high school teacher who was a stamp and coin dealer. And on weekends <laughs> I went with him to stamp and coin shows and had my own coin collection at that point. So I was, I was involved in a variety of um, small-scale business, business ventures. I, I bought my first stock when I was 10 years old. Mm. Um, I bought one share of Johnson & Johnson uh, with birthday money, and it split three for one the next day. Um, I owned stocks all the way through my childhood. My, my mom found me a stockbroker, Max Silverman, a kindly gentleman uh, who didn't mind a 10- and 12-year-old calling him up for quotes. At that point, you had a call for quotes. There was nothing available any other way. Um, and over, I did a fifth-grade um, oral presentation to my class on how to buy stocks. I remember that that was somewhat different than what the other kids were presenting on. 
and promptly got the shit beaten out of him. What what I find is uh, he checks really, off the boxes. What what I find really interesting about this guy, especially as a Buttigieg supporter, is that a lot of these billionaires really like to play up how precocious they were as a mm. child and how they always had an interest in business. Um, which you know goes back to the paper route thing. Um, yeah, the longer I do this podcast, the more I think like billionaires are just fucking with us with the paper route thing. Like oh, the yeah. Illuminati got together and they were like, what if we all say we had a paper route and then anybody who looks at us all together starts connecting paper routes to all of us. But yeah, I mean, it's like, no, it's it's like you said, they are always talking about like, this is you what, know who else had a paper route. Who? Johnny Gosh, the kid who was <laughs> kidnapped out of Des Moines, Iowa and put into sex slavery. It's all an inside Johnny Gosh joke <laughs> where every billionaire says, I have a paper route to let them know that they know about the Johnny Gosh conspiracy. He can be trusted. Yeah. Like every, every billionaire who says I had a paper route also has an app that links directly to an ankle bracelet on Johnny Gosh. It's, it's the billionaire equivalent of I heard you paint houses. <laughs> I had a paper route means I heard you know where it happened to Johnny Gosh and <laughs> he, we'll keep your mouth shut. So, he, I mean, he grew up in a fairly well-to-do family because of his dad, who was an economist at the Treasury Department for a while. Oh, okay. he went Like, his dad went to Columbia University, uh, which we did an episode on recently. Yeah. Uh, and, he, I mean, there's, you know, there's a civil fairly high-ranking civil servant dad and his mom was a social worker so they're not really worried about like teaching his son to like buy stocks and stuff yeah and i'm sure there's like definitely he, he it is weird how much of an overlap he has with pete Buttigieg himself in terms of like dad was a professor um you know i was a precocious kid who was always going to succeed um just uh, because I, I, Pete Buttigieg's whole thing is, you know, he appeals to fifty-year-olds uh, by looking like the the neighborhood kid who went to Harvard. He's the gay son, the perfect gay son for them. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, uh, Seth Klarman, he uh, went on to go to Cornell University and majored in economics, and then he got a job after that briefly, but then. Uh, instead of pursuing that job, he went back to Harvard Business School and he actually really got his start. And this this goes into what we have to say about uh, what we've said for a while about Ivy Leagues, which is that it's not about what you learn in the Ivy Leagues. It's the kind of connections you make because he, he graduated with Jamie Dimon, right. uh, the CEO of J.P. Morgan. And also after graduation, uh, quote, four wealthy families. This is from The New York Times, including... Uh, including those of two Harvard professors uh, gave him 27 million to manage his, you know, friends and family LLC to manage his, his hedge fund, which, which is no, which still exists and which he made his fortune off of called the bow post group. Mm -hmm. And so it, and that was 1982. Like the the bow post group was founded in 1982. And it is interesting where Steve, do you know the timeline that his dad was at the treasury department? Because yeah, he was he was there during wartime actually. The World so War II. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, he so he got his he was at Columbia uh, like late thirties, early to I think he graduated in nineteen thirty nine, mm-hmm. and then he started working at the Treasury in the early forties. The early forties. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, I guess like 
it's just interesting to me where he starts the bow post group, Seth Klarman, and so he gets, you know, like Andy just said, 27 million of, uh, what is it, money from a Harvard professor or something? Quote, four wealthy families. I uh, see. Two of those are his professors, yeah. And so he gets 27 million. He starts it, or he starts running it in 1982. I guess it- he couldn't get the Genovese. <laughs> <laughs> he gets... Uh, but, you know, it's the timeline is almost perfectly aligned with um, Paul Volcker and, uh, you know, breaking the back of inflation, the massive um, uh, interest rate shocks, the Volcker shocks that, I mean, really totally and permanently realigned the economy in this country. Now, Liz Warren said that Paul Volcker was one of our great Fed chairmen. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, it is something where I have no idea if his dad maintained connections at the Treasury Department, if his dad was dead by the early 80s. I think he died in 1999. 99. So it's just something weird where it's like, okay, you have a Treasury Department dad and then your son goes into the hedge fund business and seems to do pretty well for himself. Well, maybe he might have had some help along the way. Yeah, it's possible. Um but his like his dad, in addition to being a professional economist, he was also like uh, a lecturer. Yeah, and like uh, did lectures at, back at Columbia right. later in life. So like he's already running in some of the circles that would probably be down to try and invest in like his son's uh, hedge fledgling hedge fund. And at the same time, you know, if if you have a, a dad who is a professor um, at John Hopkins University, which is a fairly prestigious university you're already going to have a leg up for applying to these other prestigious universities, Cornell and Harvard business school, mm-hmm. um, which again, the, it's not really the education at these places that provides so much value. It's connections to rich people. Yeah. And that is entirely the value that was imparted upon him was just getting a connection to rich people who could fund his hedge fund. Right. And that's, you know, something we talked about on the George Soros episode among others is like a big part of how George Soros made his money was he would just put himself in a position where he was able to have lunch with, you know, the treasury minister of X country on, on one day and then the ne- or even the same day have dinner with the treasury minister of another country in the same day. You know, so it's like even just like having these meetings, even if no like inside information is exchanged, you're just meeting with these people on a regular basis and you can kind of suss out who they are, how they might behave, what they're going to do next. And so just the fact that, you know, he has all these Harvard connections, his dad's a treasury guy and an economist and a lecturer, he's just running in these circles. And that does give you an informational advantage that the vast majority of people do not have access to. Mm. Yes. So you guys did some looking into his uh, bow post group, some some of his investments in bow post group. Uh, I mean, one of the only things I could find is that he seems to be a healthcare profiteer, which explains a lot mm-hmm. of his aversion to Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as of as of Q three of twenty nineteen, bow post group LLC. I looked up their current holdings, and among the top five or so, like uh, you've got, well, Fox News Corp. And Liberty Global PLC, mm-hmm. which we've covered. Um, and another group called Chenier Energy Inc., which is, uh, it exports, it's a U.S.-based exporter of liquefied natural gas. Mm-hmm. It's worth noting that uh, Buttigieg has kind of softened his uh, his climate change rhetoric. Mm-hmm. As his campaign has progressed and gotten more of these Seth Klarman types to invest in him, yeah. So like he has, 
Let's see, right now. So that's their current holdings. He had a yeah. kidney care company, uh, Carex Biopharmaceuticals, and but they uh, they merged and converted into uh, Akiba Therapeutics. Or yeah, and so yeah, there's like a, a good deal of representation from pharma and healthcare. Um, they have Takeda Takeda Biotech, about 172 million. All who would take a hit. Yeah. under a Bernie Sanders presidency. Well, it's kind of interesting also just like uh, looking through his, reading his Wikipedia article where it talks about uh, his hedge fund being founded in 1982. It says that, and then it immediately, the Baupost Group founded in 1982, then it immediately skips to the 2008 financial crisis. <laughs> so there's just like no indication of what they were doing in between. Yeah, he he talks about his long-term investing plan as uh, value investing, which mm-hmm. uh, is a nice and vague bullshit term that is also used by the Oracle of Omaha, Will Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, Seth Klarman is compared to Warren Buffett, um, not financially, by a factor of, I don't know, 20. Uh, but he's called the Oracle of Boston. And I guess Paul Singer said that if you invest in anyone else, it would be Seth Klarman. Yeah. Um, interestingly, uh, Klarman, well, he doesn't have a, he claims not to have a Bloomberg terminal in his office, which honestly, that's, that's a good way to save money because those things are bullshit. Um, but he says he, he doesn't need like quick access to stocks because, because of his long positions, he doesn't need to do quick trades. Yeah. Unlike, um, the guy we were talking about the other day, Joe Simons or Simmons, Jim, Jim, Simons. Jim Simmons. Yeah. Jim Simons. Jim Simons. The architect. Yeah. So like Klarman's. Klarman is a value investor and like Warren Buffett and Warren Buffett's uh, his mentor, Ben Graham, who's kind of seen as like the originator of value investing. What they try to do is they have, they try to find a core of companies that they believe like their intrinsic value is lower than where they think it ought, where it's currently trading. So they believe it has room to grow in some sense. And they use all sorts of metrics to to find companies that they believe are undervalued in this way, and like they look at like price to earnings ratios or price to book ratios. The book value being like how much, uh, how much uh, shares shares outstanding were cost to obtain it, the cost it took to obtain those shares relative to what they're trading at. Right, and they go through all these metrics, and there's an entire like Ben Graham is famous for um, writing a book called Securities Analysis um, decades ago. It's sort of like the gold standard of value investing now. Mm-hmm. Some people say it's not really relevant anymore because it looks at like you know, what it's what it's trying to say. Oh, is like the, the gold standard? <laughs> what it's trying to say <laughs> is the value of a company. It often focuses on like the tangible assets of a company, of all of its point. Like how much is the all of the physical stuff of this company worth versus mm-hmm. how much it's being, the company is being traded at in terms of like it's market cap or something. Right. And that's right. just a general sort of idea of what is going on with Ben Graham. And so Warren Buffett took those ideas and turned it into value investing, which didn't exist. That term didn't exist before Buffett. Right. And it, it, it always it seems to me like it's, it's a bullshit term. Cause it just means like, uh, invest in a company or like the, the idea that all these companies are undervalued and you just have to find them seems, uh, kind of specious. And at the same time, 
the whole idea of investing is investing in a company that is going to increase in value. Like it's, um, it, it, it seems to just be a kind of clever marketing to say that like, if I'm investing in something, that means it's going to increase in value. Right. Uh, I mean, so value investing is often contrasted to growth, like growth investing, where you think like companies that are able to expand very quickly will okay. also have an expand a commensurately expanding stock price. Oh, where so, value. Yeah. So like their value, they're actually, these two categories are so deep in the literature nowadays that they're actually entire, like they're what's called quote value stocks and growth stocks. And they're like, they'll like there are reams and reams of, of pages of people saying like, this is a value stock. This is a growth stock. And they go through different metrics that say that it is in like, uh, I have a book right over there actually. 100 best stocks of 2020 <laughs> where they actually do this it's uh, like they're they're actually like eternal categories of stocks now speaking of books apparently seth Clarman wrote an investing book that now um is a collector's item like the original print goes for three thousand yeah uh, it's called margin of safety it was written in 1991 and it shows how how smart uh, you know, these wall street guys are that they can't just find a fucking PDF. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a collector's item now. Yeah. So yeah. like if you go on Amazon and search margin of safety, you can get like a used, like a used copy is like average of like $1,200 now. Yeah. But they know <laughs> that if you read the first word of every chapter, it will tell you where Johnny Gosh is buried. <laughs> so I like, I read a couple, there's How a couple of those pages ref- are stuck together. There's a couple of reviews of margin of so safety. <laughs> Sorry. There's a couple of reviews of margin of safety out there. And uh, there's also PDFs, but it doesn't seem to affect the price for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> but the review, the reviews of the book say like, this is basically just sort of a layman's accounting of what value investing is. Right. And right. it lays out some of his like uh, personal spins on the concept. I mean, I guess as a collector's item, you can like put it on your bookshelf and be like, "Look, this like, is uh, yeah, I, this is the I version that money. Martin Scarelli jerked off into." <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go back, Andy. You were saying hedge fund billionaire Paul Singer praised him. Yes. Uh, did he say something like, "If I were to trust anyone else to pry development aid out of the hands of babies dying of cholera <laughs> in the Congo, it would be Seth Klarman," <laughs> uh, because uh, Paul Singer is one of, if not the most evil billionaire on the planet Earth, and we we talked about this a lot in our episode. But the entire thing is, you know, when we talk about value investing, a lot of this is government or regulatory risk or whatever you want to call it that causes the values of stocks to be uncertain. So, you know, uh, Paul Singer and Seth Klarman went in big together in Puerto Rico, buying up debt and essentially yeah, let's go into Puerto Rico. Yeah. yeah. Just lobbying the government to impose austerity and pay them back at full value. And that's, you know, that kind of thing has been Paul Singer's entire modus operandi. Oh you yeah. Know. This is like when he says value investing, this is not only the value of stocks, but mm-hmm. also of like sovereign debt and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So Seth Klarman's whole approach of value investing and like what's really that where he picks a core of companies that are sort of themed out on the basis of being undervalued relative to some metrics, say price to earnings ratio or price to book, um, that can be contrasted pretty starkly to another hedge fund we've covered, Renaissance Technologies. Uh, It's headed by Jim Simons, who we did an episode on on the Patreon side, Mm -hmm. um, where... Instead of, so like 
Klarman is taking out very long-term positions, relatively speaking, for a hedge fund. Mm -hmm. And he also uh, is fairly risk-averse. He runs a conservative business. He has uh, markedly more cash on hand than most hedge funds. Like, more of his assets are in cash and money market stuff rather than stocks and debt and uh, other things. Right. He says he only takes out... um he only takes out loans for uh, property investments. Yep. So he's running a pretty conservative game. And his average annual return since inception of his company has been about 17%, which is lower than the S&P 500 over that same time period. But once again, sort of the the... The reasoning that he says that's okay is because during downturns, you know you can count on him to make it to reduce the loss in price of your assets. So, like, he mitigates, there's less volatility. Right, right. So, during the downturns, it won't go down as much. During the upturns, it might not go up as much either. But then again, your money is safe. And this is very... uh, very, 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 very much at odds with Renaissance Technologies, which has insane gains in the upturns and pretty bad gains in the downturns also. <laughs> but they do it through high-frequency algorithmic trading as opposed to positions that can take as long as like a couple of years to play out, in t- as, as is uh, the case in Seth, in, uh, Seth Klarman's case. Mm. Right, right. Well, and, you know, we say this every hedge fund episode, but it's worth restating that um, he's below the S&P 500 before he charges his fees, which are typically 2 and 20. 2% of all assets under management is the fee you pay to him every year and 20% of all the profits. Um, and it just kind of like a minor laugh, the fact that he's compared to Warren Buffett and called the Oracle of um, Boston. Uh, Warren Buffett has actually issued a challenge for people to find five hedge funds that beat the S&P 500 over a 10-year period, and nobody's been able to do it. And that's kind of like a big thing is uh, Warren Buffett actually, you know, whatever you think of his personal politics, is a smart enough investor that he recognizes uh, S&P 500 index funds. Passive investments seem to do much more... Usually much better than managed investments. So, like the only case, uh, monopolistic investments do the best. (laughs) I I don't know about if it's a 10 year period that they do, but Renaissance Technologies has like sometimes wildly beaded SP 500. And as we talked about a bit in that episode, um, like some of it came down strictly to like tax tax avoidance measures. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And, uh, insane like insane amounts of uh brain drain from the like the hard sciences to get people to devise these algorithms and stuff but um that's like basically a one-off exception i'm so and glad hedge that- funds as a group largely underperform the s&p 500 i'm so glad all those people working on that coronavirus cure switched over to uh, hedge fund <laughs> algorithms <laughs> But anyway, so that, that's sort of like in a and nutshell why, what he's doing with value investing. That's why people keep dying in Palestine. Coronavirus, man. It's it's shooting children. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, and, and so like any hedge fund, Seth Glarman, of course, close with Paul Singer, they go in on Puerto Rico. But just to go through the financial crisis real quick is, um, you know, he's uh, his hedge fund or one of his companies actually sued Bank of America over these kind of mortgage mix ups. Because, you know, what happened is 
all of these hedge funds and Wall Street firms and whoever were playing hot potato with mortgage-backed securities, and then the music stopped, and they had to, you know, a bunch of people who got hold left holding the bag had to throw 10 million people out on the street. There were about 9 or 10 million foreclosures between 2006, 2014. Uh, so the, just a, a, from a Hedge Clippers article on Seth Klarman, uh, his hedge fund currently has holdings, as of the time this was written, I believe is 2018, uh, currently has holdings in Aquin Financial, O-C-W-E-N Financial, uh, which in 2013 settled with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau for $2.2 billion over allegations that it, quote, violated federal consumer financial laws at every step of the mortgage servicing process, unquote, mm-hmm. and provided false or misleading information to consumers about the foreclosure process. Um, and again, you know, it's complicated. We've talked about it a lot, but, uh, you know, the Obama administration offered something called HAMP, Homeowner Mortgage uh, Bonification Program, or whatever it was. And what was happening all over the place is... Uh, mortgage servicers were engaging in what is called dual track foreclosure, where you keep collecting the fees and you tell people that you're modifying their loan under HAMP, but then on the other hand, you are actually continuing to move forward with foreclosure. Mm. That's illegal. It happened all the fucking time. And just people who thought they were they had come to an agreement to stay in their home were paying out these fees with no idea that they were being kicked out because the, the servicers will just pretend to lose paperwork, pretend you missed a payment, throw you out on the street because they want your home. Happened all over the place, and these people paid a slap on the wrist fine, and nothing happened. They stole and, millions of homes. Yeah, and this is the result of an almost eight-year-long investigation of like literally hundreds of thousands of claims from consumers against these people. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, on the other hand, his uh, Claremont Family Foundation gave 40000 to the Phillipsbrook House Association Incorporated uh, to support installation of air conditioning for Y2Y Harvard Square Homeless Shelter. Oh, yeah. It's a little bit good, a little bit bad. A little bit of, yeah. He also, um, this is from his, uh, I've got the Claremont Foundation, his family foundation, uh, public tax records gave to project bread the walk for hunger <laughs> incorporated <laughs> he gave twenty five thousand. um while at the same time supporting the candidate who uh you worked um, for a company that was fixing bread prices <laughs> <laughs> like that's it, it, both of these cases are just they show kind of no one cares about canadian ontarian bread consumers like whatsoever it it shows the the hollowness of charity in the face of systemic issues like you know these people to hold up charity as uh a just you know and we we've hammered we've beaten this dead horse time and time again that you know these billionaires hold up their charity as evidence of their inherent goodness but um i mean the the clearly with one hand they're giving crumbs while on the other hand they're just taking away crumbs <laughs> yeah i heard you were There's... fixing crumb prices um but yeah no and, i and, truly loaf these people <laughs> uh but yeah, and like just to kind of hammer the point home, uh, Hedge Clippers also points out as of December 2017, um, about 23% of Post, the hedge fund, about 23% of its public S- equity investments were in oil and gas companies, totaling about $2.3 billion. So, you know, uh, he talks about uh, uh, climate change or any Democrat who talks about climate change, if they're taking a money 
if they're taking money from a guy where uh, 23% of his investments are in exacerbating climate change, that shit is never going to have anything done about it ever. Yeah, just this week, uh, a kid asked uh, Pete Buttigieg at a campaign event, like, so in order to, you know, fight climate change, will you make a commitment to stop taking money from billionaires who invest in fossil fuels? And uncharacteristically, Pete Buttigieg just goes, no, (laughs) walks off. And Klarman is also a trustee at the uh, conservative think tank, the American Enterprise Institute, which has published uh, various papers engaging in climate change denial. It also uh, published a paper advocating the privatization of the Puerto Rican um, energy utility, which, of course, would massively benefit his uh, almost $1 billion uh, holdings in um, Puerto Rican debt that he has just recently unloaded. Uh, but it, but I mean it's it's just, just interesting where all these little networks come together to serve his financial interest. And then he, uh, you also found that he had some associations with PG and E. Right. So I mean I think actually we might want to just do the Puerto Rico thing and then we can continue it to PG and E because it seems like they're trying the same play playbook. PG and E is of course the California utility which has just recently um, uh, announced that it's going to try and go through bankruptcy because of all these wildfires in California that are very clearly have been caused by PG&E just not investing in equipment update or, or anything like that and all these fires going through. But it is something where Paul Singer's entire MO and Seth Klarman seems to have like kind of been a little feeder fish on him for some of this stuff has been to go in and buy up distressed debt and then to lobby and sue everybody he can to get paid back on that debt at 100 cents on the dollar or as mm-hmm. close to that as possible. Uh, and so they tried that pay- playbook in Puerto Rico, and uh, now with PG&E and the distressed debt it has, it seems like they're trying that same thing in California. Yeah, so like in value investing terms, I guess the value proposition is that they, these things are these utilities are too big to fail, mm-hmm. and whichever mis- municipality is charged with uh, the welfare of these consumers will step in, and you're going to get your money back, no matter what. Like, yeah, you're going to be guaranteed. And it, it kind of places a, a premium on him getting his money back versus PG&E uh, actually investing in their own infrastructure uh, yeah. in California. Yeah. You know, the kind uh, of infrastructure that's breaking down and starting these wildfires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like uh, I was I was reading like some some Wall Street analyst reports on what could happen with PG&E. And like uh, back back before the bankruptcy, um, there was more clarity on the bankruptcy proceedings. They said like, well, either could... Either they could use the bondholders plan, which is that uh, more of the money obviously streams to them and like PG&E has less to work with in terms of upgrading its capital infrastructure for the next crisis, or they could use PG&E's proposal uh, where they do do those things and then the bondholders get less. Mm-hmm. And in the first in the first case, PG&E, the company, is just plunged into dire circumstances as far as their the, the lesser shareholders are concerned. Mm-hmm. Like they're that the Wall Street analysts were saying, like, well, if they use the bondholders' plan, then the company is on worse footing in terms of its running its actual business, and therefore smaller shareholders will suffer in terms of the share price. And if they use the PG&E plan, at least you you know you're giving them a lifeline. Right, right. Yeah. And so as this bankruptcy proceeding progressed more, the court started ruling more in favor of these large bond and shareholders and saying like, all right, this is taking too long. You all need to work this out. And he's pointing to these large shareholders. Hmm. 
instead of like the you know the company and the state of California like coming together for a plan or something. So Klarman's hedge fund group, uh, they loaded up on 14.5 million of PG&E's shares in 2017 uh, before the fires really got into full sway. Um, his stake ended up being worth about 900 million at the end of that year. Um, at the same time, though, he did something kind of sly where he also took took on an insurance policy uh, on behalf of another company. So he bought the insurance plan on PG&E's, uh, their equipment that they were using, and through a process called subrogation. And he sort of assumed the responsibility of making good on those insurance claims. And so he's sort of actually hedging. Well, it's a hedge fund, so he's obviously he's hedging. And this is how he did it. He had an insurance plan against basically a fall in his share price for his holdings of PG&E stock, effectively. So, you know, sort of in either case, he stands to gain a bit. And this insurance plan is collectively worth about $1 billion. There's a billion dollars worth of claims against the power company. Mm. And it's still up in the air what what exactly will happen with that as of uh, last quarter. Right. And Hedge Clippers goes through, PG&E actually went through bankruptcy in 2001, and uh, the bankruptcy courts uh, placed about $7 billion in costs were passed on to ratepayers. Rate so there was like a, a, a jack up in prices for California utility consumers because of this bankruptcy. So a lot of people speculate that this bankruptcy is just a way of getting permission, which they would not otherwise get in order to jack up prices on ratepayers. Uh, and, you know, as, you know, a guy who has a, now a big stake in PG&E, he can say that I'm in front of the line to get yeah. money out of this bankruptcy or whatever other process the government in California ultimately goes through. Yeah. So, like, the, these insurance claims, um, if it if the bankruptcy court proceeds as it often does in California, these insurance claims will be treated as if they were senior debt. Hmm. So they're first in line to getting repaid. Right. And they followed that exact same playbook in Puerto Rico, uh, it, apparently successfully. We don't know how much actual profit they made when they exited their position just recently, but it was entirely, you know, buying up this distressed debt and then, you know, lobbying politically, suing in court, doing everything they can to say, we are front of the line. You have to pay us back as close to uh, $1 on the dollar as possible. You know, you can't give us a haircut, no haircuts. Um, and, you know, we can even just go through the Puerto Rico story here. Uh, according to Hedge Clippers, in um, 2015, uh, uh, Baupost, his hedge fund, began buying up debt under the guise of 10 different shell companies uh, in Puerto Rico. They, uh, the, his investment was not discovered until The Intercept did a story in October 2017. He admitted it, said, quote, I don't like to be attacked, and was, quote, <laughs> worried about people copycatting his firm's investment. But I think it is, uh, much more cynically, he just, you know, people recognize when you're being a fucking vampire, and, um... This is literally just a hostile takeover of a public utility. Mm -hmm. Um, and so his uh, his this group is, this is what you would do like it, this is very analogous to a hustle takeover just of like a public stock of a company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, his group was uh, bought about nine hundred and thirty three million dollars in Cofina bonds, 
Um, these things were for a time trading at like 40 cents on the dollar as opposed to that face value he paid. So if he sold them at market uh, back in uh, 2018, he would have you know lost about half his, we don't know exactly what he bought them for, but probably wouldn't have made any particular profit there. Um, but it's just interesting where in April 2019, Hedge Clippers article kind of goes through what happened with um, with these Puerto Rican bonds is the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, that's PREPA, P-R-E-P-A, in April 2019 reached a, a deal to settle more than $8 billion in debt um, in um, uh, you know various hedge funds, including Singer, Paul Singer's Elliott Management, uh, Seth Klarman's Baupost. Uh, they got in this deal between the Financial Oversight and Management Board for Puerto Rico and PREPA bondholders. Um, it calls for customers within Puerto Rico to pay an annual per kilowatt hour charge through the year 2067, which amounts to Puerto Ricans paying more than 23 billion U.S. dollars throughout that period. So everyone in Puerto Rico, a, a country where more than half of the children there live in poverty, are paying these extra utility charges until the year 2067. Uh, under the PREPA agreement, again, quoting from Hedge Clippers, even residents and businesses that generate their own electricity, for example, through environmentally friendly solar panels, will have to pay the debt charge. So no matter what you are doing, you have to pay money if you are in Puerto Rico <laughs> to Seth Klarman. So like, even if your, your meter is just shut off, you still have to pay mm-hmm. like your electric meter. Yep. And yeah, this is like a head tax almost. Mm-hmm. Effectively, again, quoting, effectively rates will increase 13% over the next 12 months with an average residential household paying an extra $130 per year by 2021 and an extra $220 per year by 2043. U.S. dollars. PREPA bondholders, which includes Seth Klarman, however, were granted a favorable lien position in the deal, ensuring that every rate pay- payer dollar goes to paying off the debt. Well, I mean, it's their fault for getting hit with a hurricane <laughs> and then dying this, in massive numbers from disease and let's see. We should you know, probably, lowering let's, the total number of people who can uh, pay. Right. The I, I think I'm, I'm very pro personal responsibility and I think the Puerto Rican people should start taking responsibility for, uh, for what's going on over there. And let's, let's just put it out there that the total Hurricane Maria death toll is 3,057. It's insane. Again, which I, is like, I mean, how many nine elevens is that? <laughs> like one nine eleven, one and a half, one and a half nine eleven, one and a half nine eleven. No, no, I guess that no nine eleven was almost three thousand. Yeah, so that's one nine eleven. Um, so I guess we should. Well, um, we're getting towards the end here, so I guess we uh, like to close out. We should take a look at uh, a, a few more of his his charitable donations, uh, unless you guys have anything else on his um, business dealings. I mean, the only thing I would say is his lobbying and uh, his donations to Republican politicians. Again, in I think the 2016 cycle, he gave about $3 million to Republicans, including Marco Rubio, Paul Ryan, etc. Um, the, there was what was called the PROMESA legislation that passed the U.S. Congress in 2016, which really set up this entire structure under which he was able to uh, impose this tax uh, on Puerto Rican ratepayers. All of these donations to various political parties resulted in this legislation, which was, of course, signed by President Obama. And, you know, like Steve was saying, he cashed out his position probably at a profit just recently, maybe to avoid scrutiny. But he was only able to cash it out at a profit 
because of this legislation and because of this deal where the um, Puerto Rican Energy Authority reached this deal with the bondholders to put these extra charges on a, a, a territory where half of the people are, half of the children, more than half of the children are living in poverty. These people cannot afford to pay and they are being bled dry by these hedge fund fucking vampires. And it's entirely about his charitable and his political donations. And now he's trying to do the same thing to the Democratic Party, you know, uh, fucking get his tentacles into all the little upstarts and just every single aspect of policy will be influenced by that money that he is spreading around right now well not all of his donations are uh, entirely about making money some of them are passion projects um i wanted to come back to the times of israel the paper he founded uh the english language paper that was meant to give um a new perspective for the israeli people they ran a an op-ed titled when genocide is permissible <laughs> uh that was immediately taken down but it argued that uh, it's okay to commit gen- for um, the Israelis to commit genocide on the Palestinians when it's a matter of personal survival. Um, he also donated. He's a prominent. He's prominently listed on the uh, donors list for the CIA Officers Memorial Foundation. Interesting. Um, which has given out awards to, uh, or they have the Richard M. Helms Award um, for exemplary service. And some names on here include uh, 2017 Madeleine Albright who you may remember from the uh, genocide of the Iraq sanctions regime in the 90s. Um, And this classic quote. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died in in Hiroshima. And, And, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. So that's 2017 winner Madeleine Albright. Uh, 2014, win- or well, 2015 winner is President George H.W. Bush, which sp- who uh, uh, loved grabbing asses and spreading lies about incubators. Uh, 2014 uh, winner of the prize is Henry Kissinger, whose hits include uh, uh, a massive bombing campaign in Cambodia that we all know about that killed at least 100,000 civilians and then uh, set the stage for the Khmer Rouge. Also... Um, he made Laos the most bombed country in the world. Vietnam, of course, he sabotaged the peace talks. East Timor, he instructed the Indonesian government to wait to carry out their genocide until he left the country so it wouldn't look bad. And he also supported the uh, Pakistani mass murder in Bangladesh. And the reason I bring all this up is I get I get the feeling that um, uh, this man, Claremont, is pro-genocide as long as the good guys do it. <laughs> um, and uh, do you guys have anything else? Well, I guess the last thing I wanted to just mention is Harvard University, because another thing that Hedge Clippers went through pretty well is um, Harvard's endowment, which is the largest uh, college endowment in the world. As of September 2017, it's about $37.1 billion that Harvard invests, you know, make money for its endowment for its university. Harvard's endowment, according to Hedge Clippers, has about a 5%, about 5% of its entire endowment is invested in Baupost hedge funds, Seth Klarman's hedge fund. This is... uh, Uh, Again, according to Hedge Clippers, Harvard's endowment's largest single position. They apparently have almost about $2 billion invested just in Baupost Hedge Fund. So it's like, why is Harvard making such a comparatively huge investment in his hedge fund compared to, you know, all their other investments where they kind of spread the risk around? 
And Hedge Clippers kind of goes through this. I'll link the article in the description for the episode. I recommend people read it. But it talks about how he's making, you know, these kind of charitable donations to Harvard, which are tax deductible, while at the same time he's managing Harvard's investment, which he's making a profit on. So the very money he's giving to the endowment is flowing back to him, and he's making a profit off it. Um, And... It's it's something where, just according to Hedge Clippers, the annual management fee on a $2 billion investment alone, this $2 billion that Harvard gives him, the annual management fee that he's collecting from Harvard could be 20 to $40 million per year. So that's before performance fees and anything else. Mm-hmm. Harvard is paying this guy 20 to $40 million a year just for this management of the money. And it's not clear that he's even beating the S&P 500 or even making them a profit doing that. Uh, the uh, from Hedge Clippers um, in 2016, it lagged the S&P 500's uh, return. In uh, October 2017, through the year, it was only up three percent, far behind the S&P 500, which was up over ten percent over the year. Again, this is before fees. So Harvard is dumping all this money with him. They're probably losing money compared to giving it to the S&P 500, and it's not clear why, except that he makes charitable donations to the university and seems to have some connections, political connections, with people at the university. Yeah. And I mean, of course, there's also the argument that there's, quote, less risk when you invest in the hedge fund, but... Well, uh, I mean, we should say it's not possible to invest directly into the S&P 500 unless you buy every single holding of the S&P 500. (laughs) So it's very hard to replicate the results exactly. But you could, like, in theory, you could find two to three uh, broad index or ETF funds which largely track the S&P 500 and do commensurately well. Hmm. Also, one bizarre thing, speaking of elite universities, that I found in his... um, in the Klarman Family Foundation uh, tax returns was uh, it's everything subcategorized, all the different charities or uh, uh, organizations that he gives to. And under the category of connections to Israel, he lists giving $150,000 to MIT, <laughs> which Epstein Media Labs, baby. Yeah. <laughs> but jo- Joey Ito somewhere in there. But it just like, you know, and we really should do a future full episode on the Ivy Leagues and the absolute barrel of corruption that these things have become. According to Hedge Clippers, also uh, uh, Yale and Princeton have a combined $1.7 billion invested with this guy's hedge fund. But the last thing I wanted to mention, according to Hedge Clippers, Harvard University's share of Baupost Hedge Fund's Puerto Rico bond holdings... Uh, if it's similar to its hedge fund, uh, if, if, if it's similar to its holdings of his hedge fund, it means Harvard University has an interest in an estimated $60 million in Puerto Rican debt. This is the richest university by endowment on the planet Earth, uh, has a big position in starving Puerto Rico and imposing austerity on, on the citizens there. It's a horrible thing to imagine. And the Harvard Endowment Fund has actually come up before on this podcast when mm. we covered uh, IKEA. Right, yes. So the the Romanian forestry claims uh, springing from like the pre-revolution Romania, uh, Harvard actually, Harvard's endowment actually hired a few agents to go and buy up like ill-gotten parcels of <laughs> forestry for millions of dollars. <laughs> and that went on for years. Mm. So, I mean, these guys have... Uh, their hands in mini pies. Don't feel and bad for should. the Puerto Ricans. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, you're crazy. 
Uh, we don't really have time to get into it, but there was also a story in 2012. They were buying up in Canada. They were buying up farmland. His hedge fund was in the uh, uh, Melecton Township, M-E-L-A-C-T-H-O-N, the township. It's about 120 kilometers north of Toronto, Ontario. They were buying up farmland in the township, telling people they were going to do um, potato farming there. And then in actuality, they were trying to merge all the land to do a, a limestone quarry, like do limestone stone mining that would have apparently uh, deeply contaminated the groundwater for the entire area, one of the largest quarries in the world, and then there was a massive public reaction and they had to back off it. But, you know, again, this just kind of shows the type of person you're dealing with, a a deeply deceptive guy who doesn't give a fuck about anything except making money. You tried to to poison groundwater. Uh, no, I worked for a company that worked for <laughs> a was, company. I was a consultant that tried to who poison had groundwater. A client <laughs> who wanted to poison groundwater. Uh, yeah, well, thank you guys for listening. This has been Grub Stakers. Uh, let's uh, wish Bernie the best in New Hampshire. That's either coming in as you're listening to this or is already done. Um, I also am just going to sneak a plug in here if you're listening to this on the 11th. Uh, I have a cartoon that I've been just a god awful cartoon that I've been working on for years. That's premiering at Channel One Hundred One at the uh, Spectacle Theater in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. So uh, go check that out and vote against it, so I can finally be freed from this uh, multi year project that's been eating away at me. Um, and uh, with that, this has been Grubstakers. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Steve Jeffers. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Bye bye. <laughs>